So now we're going to be talking about optimism today. Are you an optimist or a pessimist, Mackenzie? I would like to think an, I would like to think an optimist. What is an optimist? What does that mean when we say optimist? How would you define that? I think it's finding joy in the little things and not letting stuff just drag you down. Yeah. Perfect. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Mackenzie. <laughs> so Mackenzie did a great job, not just today, but for the last year. We're going to miss her. She's one Pastor Dan and I have our eye on. She's got to graduate at some point and hopefully she'll come right back here and we'll have a spot for her and uh, she'll keep ministering to you guys, to your kids. Now, we're going to be talking today about optimism versus pessimism. How many of you, just I'm curious, have been watching the Olympics? Anybody watched, caught any of the Olympics? Raise your hands. Anybody? Okay. Um, so I've watched the Olympics. Part of it is, I think it's my responsibility as an American, but I also enjoy it. I mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago, I love watching the Olympics. It's kids. I mean, kids that are my kids age who've given their whole lives to something who go and compete and everything that they've worked for is decided in an instant in 45 seconds, in a minute, in 15 minutes, whatever it would be. And, um, and I guess last night it was in 11 seconds or 10 seconds when you run the hundred. I mean, it's amazing to watch. And I like watching watching the different countries and the different countries represented. We have such a, a difference in personalities from the athletes that represent each country. You have, um, you know, we have the American athletes and they're all happy to be there, of course, but some more concerned about making political statements. And then you have some athletes from some of the more well, restrictive uh, countries. You have like the Russians and the Chinese and their uh, the athletes are sort of, you know, afraid. They want to make sure they represent well. And, and uh, it's, it's kind of funny because you see an American who may be taking a knee during the anthem and the Chinese and the Russians sort of scoot away because they wouldn't want the government snipers to hit them accidentally if they tried to do that. Then you have like the, the Japanese and they were being interviewed and they're very honor bound. The people, you know, very uh, concerned about representing their country well and they're proud and it's a great thing thing. Um, and then you have this country that just tripped me out. I was watching like the first or second night, the Olympics, and it was swimming. I like swimming. I like running. I don't do either of those well, which is probably why. Matter of fact, I don't think I do any of them well. Um, but I like swimming and running particularly. Uh, it was a swimmer. And um, this was a guy who stood out from the rest of the crowd. He was on the very end, right, which down here, I guess lane number one, which is like where the people go that nobody really wants to watch, and he's dancing. He's up there, he's just, I'm not going to show you, but he's just dancing, right? He's just got this, this, and he's smiling, and he's turned around, they're introducing everybody, and all the other athletes are slapping their arms, slapping their chest, and trying to be intimidating. Swimmers are not intimidating, by the way. They glare at you, and it's kind of funny because they got the hats on and stuff, um, but this guy's like turned around and they're like, Hey, you know, and he's like, Oh me, you know, he's waving at his, and he's just having a blast. And no one even talked about him as a potential winner of anything. So he dives in, there's this race up and back, up and back, whatever it was. And then the announcers, they begin to, to look down at lane number one and he's starting to win. And they're like, what in the world? And then they mentioned his name. They had to look it up. You know, it's like, who is the guy in lane number one? And they find his name and they look it up. And he ends up, he didn't win first place. He didn't win a gold. He didn't win, he didn't win uh, silver. He won bronze. But when he touched the wall, everyone forgot about the first two people who won, you know, gold and silver. And they were pumped about this kid who took bronze. And so in the interviews, they didn't interview the first two. They didn't care. They interviewed this guy 
And they said, what in the world happened to you? Now he's still dancing. He's still pumped. He's like, what? I won. He didn't even know they were timing him. I don't think he got to the end and they brought him up and they're interviewing him. And you know, the announcer's talking to him and they say, where are you from? And he said, Tunisia. Now I've never heard of Tunisia before. I think I may have flown over Tunisia, never been to Tunisia, don't know anything about the country, but they're happy people. I guarantee it. Cause this guy was just pumped. And he said, they said, well, what's your secret? How did you swim so fast? You weren't even supposed to be in the Olympics. We had to send somebody from your country and you were the guy who showed up for the signups. I don't know what happened. He goes, I don't know, man. I jump in the pool and uh, that's Jamaican, isn't it? That's not Tunisian. I don't know Tunisian. I don't know what his accent was, but he said, I jumped in the pool and I swam fast. And they said, well, how did you swim fast? And he said something about a crocodile. I don't know if it was crocodiles chasing him or what, or he was swimming like a crocodile and he's smiling and they said, you won. And he didn't even, he just, he was just so pumped to be there. He said, this is the Olympics. He kept saying it over and over again. He was just happy to be there. He was positive. He was optimistic. He don't know, man. He just dove in the pool and started swimming. And you know what happened? He won. Pure joy. Contrasting to some of the other athletes who may be performing out of fear because they want to make a statement or because they want to win and and have honor and pride. There's just pure joy in the competition happy to be there, optimistic and positive about the future. I decided I'm a fan. I'm a fan of the United States and Tunisia. I'm rooting for them. The rest of the Olympics, I don't think they've competed in any other events except this one. Well, there may be one I tell you about in a minute. How many of you, now don't raise your hands, please, because I'm getting ready to tell you if you're a pessimist, you shouldn't be. How many of you are pessimistic by nature? It's kind of funny because in the first service, I mentioned to a group sitting near me, I said, hey, I'm going to be teaching today about optimism and pessimism. And they went, well, we're pessimistic. And I went, you are in trouble today (laughs) because you probably should slip out. Uh, How many of you are pessimistic? How many of you are optimistic? Just in your own mind, just sort of decide. I'm an optimist. I'm a pessimist. Um, If you are a pessimist, pessimist, I'll give you some definitions here on the screen of just in case. I love the picture that Pastor Jared picked out of the old person sitting there with their arms folded. An optimist is a person who tends to be hopeful and confident about the future or the success of something. A pessimist, conversely, is a person who tends to see the worst aspect of things or believe that the worst will happen. Now, some of you are going to take you're going to cop out. You're going to take the middle ground and you're going to say, I'm neither an optimist or a pessimist. I'm a realist. And I would say, garbage. You can't be a realist. You're either pessimistically realistic or optimistically realistic, but you have to be, you have to choose one side or the other. If you find yourself in the optimist camp, Congratulations. However, I think many of us find ourselves in the pessimistic camp, and I wonder why. Optimists generally approach life with a positive outlook, while pessimists tend to expect the worst. Optimists go into new situations with high expectations, while pessimists keep low expectations to prepare themselves ahead of time for negative outcomes. I did a little research on this. Now, the first research I did was anecdotal, which means that I listen, I observe, I eavesdrop, I watch, I talk to people, gather data, information. I was on vacation two weeks ago, went to Arkansas, visited my son, both my sons, but was there for my older son who is expecting a baby, he and my daughter-in-law. And uh, we found out, by the way, it was a gender reveal party. We found out that I'm having a granddaughter, so we're pretty pumped about that. 
my son is getting over the shock of that. Um, and uh, I think two and a half weeks later, he's pretty excited. But at first, it kind of set him back a little bit because, you know, he had a brother and, you know, he's 100% boy and, you know, he knew exactly what to do with boys and daughters freaked us both out. But we're both pumped and excited about a little girl uh, who's on her way. But I was gone. So when I'm gone, sometimes I have the ability to just think from a distance about you guys, to pray for you, to observe, to watch the news, to, to just kind of let my thoughts settle or, 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 or the dust clear a little bit. And I, I just had this desire, this impression that I needed to talk to you about this whole optimism versus pessimism thing. So I researched pessimism and optimism, and this is what I found out. About 25% of you, if you're a pessimist, is, is caused by or created by the environment that you were raised in or within. If your parents were pessimistic, you probably are pessimistic. Now, by the way, pessimism and happiness or optimism and happiness are not the same thing. You can be optimistic and still not be happy about something. Optimism and pessimism are sort of a worldview. It's a way we frame the way we perceive and view the world. So about 25% comes from your parents. It's their fault. My kids love to blame things on me. You can blame things on your parents, right? It's their fault if you're optimistic or pessimistic. 25% of it is the way that the world has happened to you. Now, I say that in a very fatalistic kind of way. It's the circumstances that you find yourself having been through or having to deal with. A lot of them unfair, unexpected. You know, you leave home all optimistic, thinking that things are going to be great. Sometimes they're not so great, and you run into stuff that makes you kind of wait for the other shoe to drop. I get it. The other 50% comes from personality. You're born with a predisposition toward being optimistic or pessimistic. So if you're a pessimist, I'm not judging I mean, I have somebody in my family who's the most pessimistic person you've ever met in your entire life. They could win $100 million and complain about the fact that they owe taxes. I mean, it's just, there's always a negative kind of a bent toward things. I have another person in my family who's so optimistic, I think they're Pollyanna. Like, aren't you paying attention? You know, you gotta at least be you know, careful, be aware. So, I mean, there's extremes on both sides. I'm not judging, but what I wanna suggest to you is that if you find yourself with a sour spirit, as a diehard pessimist, you probably don't really understand the promise of the gospel in the first place. Now, I find myself wavering back and forth sometimes. Sometimes it's easy for me to get pessimistic. Joy will remind me from time to time, don't be negative, think of the positive. I understand. But I feel like we Christians sometimes are causing other people to wonder what it is we really believe by our sour and negative disposition toward the world around us. I've asked many of you guys, just about everybody I've bumped into over the last couple of weeks, Pastor Dan has asked many of you, why do you think so many Christians are pessimistic? Why do you think? Oh, the answers are interesting. The questions that we ask and the answers we get, honest, thought-provoking, here's one of them. I think our hope's in the wrong place. We hope and think and work and dream for the stuff that's here. If we had a different perspective, we'd be optimistic, but we're not. We have different goals, different dreams. I had one person 
when we had lunch, I asked him the question. And he said, well, I think we watch too much news. And everybody's like, well, yeah, we watch too much news. Of course we do. And he goes, no, 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 you understand. What I'm saying is, is that we assume the people who are telling us how things are in our world, we assume that because they may align with our political position that we just assume they're Christians. And he said, that doesn't necessarily mean they're Christians if they're liberal or conservative or somewhere in between. It just means they have opinions and they're strongly opinionated and strongly worded. But if they're not Christians, they don't have the same hope that we have. They don't have the same worldview or perspective. I understand how people who don't know Jesus are pessimistic. But for those of us who know Jesus, it's hard to imagine how we would have a pessimistic view of the world as long as our hope is in something beyond what we experience and we see here. Because my Bible tells us this world will disappoint us. But my Bible also tells me that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will never disappoint us. So what I want to do is talk to you about a passage of Scripture and challenge you. It's a friendly challenge. I'm not, I mean, I'm sitting under the authority of the Word of God just like you guys are. Uh, I, I, sometimes when you say preach, uh, when someone says preach or when I say it, the word sounds weird to me. Uh, sometimes some of you call me preacher and I'm like, who are you talking to when you say preacher? It doesn't it really resonate with me because preacher to me, uh, it connotates somebody who stands up on, uh, in a pulpit and talks down to people. And you know that's not always the way that it is. But to me, my goal is to take the truths in the word of God, to study them, to try to apply them and to share them with you guys. You're my friends. I'm right there with you, learning these truths, trying to apply them, not better than any of you, not smarter than any of you, just another person trying to journey with you to become more like Jesus. And so as we take these truths and as we apply them to our lives, as we sort of unpack them, it's my privilege, it's my, my, something I love to be able to kind of take a scripture that you may be familiar with or maybe never even heard of in the, the first place and sort of unpack it a little bit and just say, look, this is what I've studied. This is what God's doing in my life. God's convicted me on this issue. I trust maybe he'll convict you. The apostle Paul's talking to us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the book of Colossians. This is a book written to a church who was dealing with living in a world that was disappointing to them. Many of the people in the church uh, here in this small town were coming out of a very worldly perspective or worldview that was consumed with things that that weren't Christian, that weren't even close to being Christ-like. There was a little bit of pressure on them for stepping away from the world. There was a, a draw or a pull back toward the world. And the Apostle Paul was giving a reminder to this great church. He was saying, listen, you guys are no longer citizens of this world. You're no longer bound here. You're no longer trapped to the things that you see and experience. Well, let me read it from his pen to your ears. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. My biggest concern is when I read scripture to you, that you just sort of look at it and tune it out. So let me try to explain it to you because this one's a really good one. I'm going to break it down into three parts. There's a whole lot more parts that if I was really being technical and thorough, I would break it down into. We would take several weeks to deal with this passage. We're not going to. We're going to fly over it at about 36,000 feet. But I just want to share with you three things 
that I trust will reinforce your optimistic worldview because our hope is not in us. It's not in what we see and experience. It's in a savior who's already overcome. Remember, that's the first thing. We need to remember that we've been raised with Christ. Now, what does this mean? If or since we've been genuinely saved, then that means that we've been freed. Now, I'm going to assume here that many of us are believers. Now, I assume that because I know a lot of you and I know that believers congregate in churches, and that's a great thing. But I also appreciate the fact that there, there are many who come every single week who aren't yet believers in Jesus Christ. It means a lot to me that you would come and hear things that aren't necessarily uh, things that you have received or, or uh, believed yet. And I trust that if you keep coming, God will change your mind. But I'm going to talk to those of you, those of us who are Christians. Since you're a Christian, our perspective has to change. Why? Because we have been freed. We've been freed from sin. Well, what's that mean? Man, if we really understand what that means, it sets a, a perspective or a worldview in motion that causes us to have hope in something other than ourselves. The Bible tells us that when we were born, we were born dead into sin. How dead? Totally dead. How able to respond? Totally unable to respond. There was a supernatural miracle the day that the Holy Spirit whispered in your ear and quickened or, or stirred your heart and you received this free gift of eternal life. The Bible tells us that it was God's grace because he gave us something we didn't deserve and couldn't earn and it was just our faith as we received it and it freed us from the curse that Adam and Eve brought into our lives. And I don't blame them because I probably... You probably, we probably would have messed it up along the way, just like they did. But when they sinned, humankind was destined, destined to be cursed, cursed to an eternity in separation from God. And Jesus Christ reversed the curse. Now, did Adam and Eve have reasons to be pessimistic? Absolutely. Did their kids? Sure, if they had a limited perspective. As the history of the Old Testament unfolds, could people constantly look at how the glass was half empty and curse the darkness? Yes. But there was a promise, the promise of a Savior, Jesus Christ. And that promise, as long as the focus was on that promise and not on all of the junk that people experienced and dealt with in this world, then a person was optimistic person knew that a solution was coming, that there was more to live for than what we see and experience. And so you look at this first little iteration or first little era, and then you see Jesus being given. And Jesus, as a little baby, came into this world and began to live this life. And as he started his ministry at about 30 years old, people didn't like him. And there was persecution and stress and trouble. And the longer he preached and the longer he taught and did miracles, the harder it became. The disciples were frustrated. Did they have reason to be pessimistic? Sure. They could have looked at all of the opposition, all of the unlikeliness, the promises of Jesus focused on the darkness instead of lighting that candle. And then Jesus died and defeated sin, Satan, and death as he rose again and ascended into heaven, giving us the ultimate reason to be optimistic. And then after Jesus ascended into heaven, where he is seated, by the way, at God's right hand, you and I know that the promise we live with is that one day Jesus is coming again soon. 
And every struggle and frustration and disappointment and sadness and pain that you and I have will be a distant memory as long as we are in Christ. One day Jesus is coming again soon. Or we're going to meet with him soon as we leave this earth before he comes back. So the Apostle Paul is setting some foundation, some context, and he says, since we've been raised with Christ, since we're believers, since we've been freed, since we have the only reason to be really optimistic, then let's go ahead and look at the responsibility that he's given us. We have a responsibility to set our hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, to set our minds on things above, not on earthly things. Well, this goes back to my friends who I talked with about this question. Why are so many Christians pessimistic? Because our minds have been set on earthly things. We're pursuing the things of this earth. Well, you say, well, what are the things of this earth? Here are the things of this earth. The things of this earth are the things that you're going to leave behind when you die. Those are all the things of this earth. The things of heaven are all of the things that you're going to take with you after you're gone. The investment that you've made in people, the way that we have been faithful in serving our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and the challenge is simple. That we're supposed to set our minds and we're supposed to set our hearts. Now, there's two different words in the Greek. They have a compound sort of a meaning. They both add together to make a more powerful meaning. In the NIV, they translate them with the same word. So I'm just going to help you real quickly understand the compound meaning here because this is a challenge. It's something that we need to accept as our responsibility. There are two words. The first one, the first word set, is a word for seek. It means to look for. The second word here in verse 2 means to think or actually to do. Now, I want to help you understand the relationship here. It's like a compass. How many of you guys have ever used a compass? I want to see hands because you younger generations, you have your phones, and as long as you have a GPS, you don't have to use your compass. I remember when GPS is first started becoming popular and affordable. I used to backpack with my boys and I would carry a compass and I'd carry a GPS because I didn't trust the GPS. I did trust my compass. Why? Because a compass has been tried and tested and proven true for hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years. When you look at a compass, the first thing you have to do is you have to decide to take it out and look at it, right? We got to decide you're going to consult it. You have to look for what? Direction. So you pull the compass out of your backpack, your fanny pack, if you carry one of those, out of your pocket, and decide to consult the compass. Now, this is a choice that you and I have to make. Setting our minds means that we're going to begin or commit to choose to look for something. Do you ever think about or realize that we oftentimes see what we're looking for? You walk into a room and you think, hey, you know what? I'm going to be nice to everyone here today. Everyone's going to be nice to me. I'm going to look for all the positive. I'm going to look for the things I enjoy and I like. How much better experience is it than when we walk into a room and go, nobody likes me. This is going to be terrible. This is going to be boring. I can't stand, you know. I mean, what we look for, we find. Our attitude or our perspective changes. Attitude is one of the only things that we can actually control that changes our lives and the way that we perceive the world. 
So as we look at this, we have to decide that we want to look for the things that are positive, that are right, that are, well, heavenly oriented. Now, heaven is consumed with Jesus. Now, it's also the reality of the fact that we will have no more pain, no more sadness, no more sin, that the world will be a distant memory and all of its disappointments, that those who've died in Christ, who've already left us, will be able to see and be with and be with for eternity, but most importantly, we'll be with Jesus. Heaven is consumed with Jesus. So how do we understand the things of heaven? How do we set our minds on the things of heaven? Well, we do what you and I do every Sunday which is take the word of God, open the Bible and say, this is what Jesus did. This is what we should do. This is who Jesus was. This is who we should be. And we try to take that stuff and put it in here so we can live differently. And the first choice is I'm going to look for it. I'm going to find it. And when I find it, then we have to go to the second idea. And the second idea is that I have to choose to do it. When you have your compass out, right? You're trying to get somewhere and it tells you the direction you have to choose. I'm going this direction. And when you choose to go this direction, here's the part of the compound meaning that's important. It's not just looking for direction. It's not just looking for the things of heaven. It's choosing to do the things of heaven, which means that all of the other stuff we're choosing not to do. So if you were to give yourself an evaluation, a life evaluation, just between you and the Lord, and you sat down and you said, how much of my life is spent on the things of heaven. Breaking that down even further, how much of my life is spent trying to understand and learn the things that Jesus did and trying to live my life that way? Because that's what you have that counts and that matters and all the other stuff is the stuff that's gonna be left here once you go. When we ask ourselves that question, well, I suspect we would all get different answers, but it leaves me with a challenge. And the challenge is perhaps that maybe I should live a little different way. Now, what's the positive or the upside? The upside is, is that I get to live a different way. The Apostle Paul said in one short passage of scripture for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And I heard messages from pastors over and over and over and over again who would talk about this passage, this short little verse, and they would talk about it like the Apostle Paul just couldn't stand his life. Oh, to live is Christ. To live is so disappointing. To live is so hard. To live is just so, so difficult. It's the government. It's my family. It's my friends. It's the finances. It's my economy. My goodness, it's so bad being here. And then he walked around like an Eeyore and he said, I guess I'll stay because it's not right for me to jump off of a bridge. And, you know, and so I'm watching this and I'm going, wow, the world is a terrible place. But then when you read stories of the apostle Paul, who took, who took the words and life of Jesus and tried to do and, and say those things, you don't see pessimism at all. You see somebody who believed one important principle, and that is that everything in this life can change in one supernatural instance. And that Jesus is in the life-changing business, and that he's left us with the responsibility and opportunity to be part of that business as well. But he's looking for people who are willing to be consumed with these kinds of things and not the things of this world. Where is our hope? 
So my question would be to you, my friends, where is your hope? Well, the third part of this passage, not only do we need to remember and not only do we have a reason, but I believe that we need to be optimistic. An optimistic person is a person who understands a powerful truth. And the powerful truth is found in Romans 8.28. We know. I'm going to stop right there. Because that's such a powerful phrase that's so easy to skip. There's some things you know, right? Because you've been told. There's some things you know because you've read and discovered them. There's some things that you believe to be true but don't really matter to you. And then there's some things that you know. Pastor Dan and I became friends in eighth grade. That's a long time ago for those of you who are keeping score. I don't even know the math. I'm 51. Dan's not quite yet that old. I guess we were 14 and 13. By watching somebody, staying in touch with somebody, being part of somebody's life over 35 years, you know somebody, don't you? Well, it's not because they've told you who they are. It's not because, you know, they tricked you into believing who they are. Because you see highs, you see lows, you see character unfold over time, you see reaction to adversity, you see how somebody responds to success, you see how they treat people when they're wronged, you see character develop, and you know somebody. I've been married for 31 years, and I know my wife. I know she loves me. And you know how I know she loves me? Because she's still here. <laughs> I'm, I'm telling you. There have been all kinds of reasons why I would not even have blamed her if she had been like, look, out of here, see ya. But she's here. And I know how she responds to adversity. I know how she celebrates. I know what makes her happy. I know what breaks her heart. I know because I've experienced. And when you experience something, you believe it on a fundamental level. Now this passage here, this is your reason for being optimistic, guys. We know. If you're new to Christianity and you don't know God that well, there are people in your life who do. And you can know vicariously through their stories, but also the stories we read in this word. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. But then you say, Pastor Rick, all things are not good things. Don't you see what's going on? We live in a terrible place in terrible times and blah, 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 blah. Um, yeah, I see it. It's temporary. 
Should I be interested? Yeah. Should I allow it to change my disposition? No. Because God works bad things and good things together for real, spiritual, moral, intrinsic kingdom good. So even in the bad, God's working for good. I know that in all things, God works for the good of those who loved him and have decided to give their lives to him and live according to his plan. So many people wonder why it's just not working. They wonder why life's just not clicking, why there's still that void. Well, I say I'm a Christian, but I still don't feel it. I still don't sense it. I still don't get it. And it's because we're waiting to totally give ourselves to his purpose and his plan. To set our thoughts, to set our hearts on kingdom things where we live and do the things Jesus would do. And that, friends, brings an unshakable faith and a peace that passes all human understanding. The Olympics, my favorite nation, one of my least favorite sports. What do you call it? Sculling? Rowing? Where you put people in a boat facing the wrong direction, and they row. Now, if you watch the Olympic sport, this sport, there is one person who gets to yell at the people who are doing the rowing, and that sounds like fun. I mean, you know, that could be, and they get to watch where they're going, and, you know, that may be in line with my spiritual gift. I don't know. But at the very beginning of the Olympics, they had a guy who was rowing by himself, and do you know what nation he was from? Tunisia. I'm not making this up. When they race as they, you know, skull, row, when they cross the finish line, a horn sounds. Merk. And the next one. Merk. And then the next one. Merk. But they don't just sound three horns because, you know, that would be too easy. They wait until all eight people are done, and they keep sounding the horn for everybody. And I'm telling you, there was this one guy in the back that was barely even in the picture a couple times, and he was sculling. He was rowing. He was smiling. He was waving at the crowd. He was bouncing off of the cones, facing the wrong direction, right? Rowing like this is a big kayak, man, you know? Um, that's Jamaican again, and he's Tunisian. And they're watching him, and he's having a blast because he doesn't care about the competition. He doesn't care what anybody else is doing. He doesn't care what anyone thinks of him. He's in the Olympics, happy to be there. They're interviewing, talking to people. I mean, like focusing on the lead boat. And they were almost done with their whole story by the time he crossed the finish line. I'm not kidding with you. He was so late that they were congratulating the winners. And then you hear the horn sound after like three minutes. And it's like, murk. And then you look at him and his paddle's up in the air. And he's acting like he won just because he's there. That's what I want to be like. I live according to a different set of rules. I'm playing a different game. And you know what? Everybody wins. Let's be optimists, my friends. Let's live according to a different set of rules so that people can see how real this gospel is. Father, thank you for my friends.